of conflict and crisis, like the moment we are currently in, artists often feel the need to take a stand, to engage in activism. But my guest on today's program says we should recognize that art and politics have very different agendas. These are different realms, he writes, and the values of one can be inhospitable, even deadly, to the values of the other. George Packer is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of 10 books. His latest essay is Why Activism Leads to So Much Bad Writing. George Packer is my guest today on Lean Out. George, welcome to Lean Out. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Kara. Very nice to have you on. I'm really looking forward to discussing your recent Atlantic piece, which helped me think through some issues in our culture that have puzzled me for some time. But before we get to that, George, I want to thank you. This is not the first time your work has helped me. You were one of the authors of the Harper's Letter, a statement on open debate signed by prominent writers. And when it came out, the big criticism was that this was cultural elites defending their own dominance. I have to say it did not feel like that to me as a rank and file journalist in a large media organization. It felt to me like you were doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves at that time. So so thank you for that. That's how we saw it too. We weren't aware of ourselves as being elites of any kind. We were just a group of people who were worried about the direction the culture was going in, especially in the summer of 2020. And uh, a kind of witch hunt fever had taken over some of our cultural institutions. And I think you're right. We did it for everyone who felt threatened by a climate of intolerance and hostility to speech. And we heard from people afterward who didn't feel they could speak up or use their names, but who wanted us to know that we had helped them and and they appreciated it. Mm. And the the response to that letter was quite intense. What did you learn from the response? I learned we had no idea how bad it had gotten until the letter came out. That letter, Tara, your listeners can go back and look at it. It'll take them a minute to read, was almost anodyne. It was so mild in its defense of what we all thought were basic principles of a liberal society. You have to be able to listen to people you don't agree with. You have to be able to answer them and, and get into a discussion and an argument with them in which you genuinely talk to each other and don't try to shut it down. You have to have an atmosphere in which people can take risks and can say things that might be unpopular without fear of the end of their career. And the the response... There were there were positive responses, but the main response was was negative and in some cases hostile to the point of uh, we became the notorious Harper's letter and the infamous Harper's letter. And there are people who still refer to it that way as if it had become instantly a pariah letter um, and as if we had taken aim at justice and equality and virtue and all the things that right-minded people want, when in fact, we were saying you can't defend those things without an atmosphere of open debate. So it was a shock to me how hostile the response was in some quarters. The degree of um, rage and contempt was off the charts. And it told me we, in this 
sort of mild attempt to speak up for liberal values had really hit a nerve and had we found out just how unpopular liberal values had become in some quarters. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to move now to, to talking about how this all applies to your, your latest piece in The Atlantic, Why Activism Leads to So Much Bad Writing. Um, this is something I've really been thinking about a lot, watching Canadian literature become very dull and dogmatic in recent years. And I, I've really struggled to understand the processes of how this happened. So you raised several kind of pressing issues in this essay, the first of which, as you put it, is that you can't claim to support freedom of expression if you won't extend it to speech you detest. So just to to start with this, there have been charges of hypocrisy from the free speech anti-cancellation crowd in recent weeks with the clampdown on pro-Palestinian speech. This is something you address. Are are these charges fair? I think uh, for probably for some individuals, they're fair. There are people who probably don't mind seeing student groups banned and speakers disinvited because they are taking a a strongly pro-Palestinian line. But I would answer that, first of all, quite a few signers of the Harper's Letter very quickly uh, defended the right of, for example, a Palestinian writer to receive a prize that had already been awarded to her in Germany, or of a Vietnamese American writer to be allowed to speak at a Jewish cultural institution in New York where he'd been invited. You can't have it both ways as that writer, Viet Thanh Nguyen, and others want to have it both ways. They were hostile to the Harper's letter, and now they're hostile to the atmosphere of suppression that has come about because of the Hamas attack in Israel. So it, it's it really, your, your commitment to these values is really only tested when something you truly dislike is at stake. And that's when you have to say, I really don't want to hear it, but I know that I have to hear it, and then I'll answer it. And so hypocrisy is on all sides of this issue. And as I said in the essay, it's partly due to the fact that everyone feels they have to say something all the time about every issue, because everyone now has a microphone. But Having to say something means there will be times when you don't say something or you don't want to say something, and then you'll be accused of not caring if Afghan refugees are forced back from Pakistan into Afghanistan or not caring about massacres in Darfur because you didn't say anything about them. To me, the answer is probably just not to say something all the time, (laughs) not to think that you're a a local government or a public relations firm that has to keep issuing statements. But once you do start, then you kind of have to care about the whole world. And we're not cut out that way. So we're sort of all hypocrites when it comes to other people's tragedies. You argue in the essay that writers and artists may be the last people to turn to for wisdom in a crisis, and that artistic and political values are are not the same. In some ways, they're opposed, and, and mixing them can corrupt both. Walk me through your thinking on that point. Right. I I don't mean that art and politics have nothing and should have nothing to do with each other. That would be a nihilistic sort of position or a weird art for art's sake purism, which I don't hold for a second. I mean, my favorite literature is the the literature of politics. It's Dostoevsky, it's Conrad, it's Doris Lessing, it's V.S. Naipaul. What I'm saying is that if you think that your political values are going to lead you to 
good art because they're the right values. Or if you think that your artistic ability is going to lead you to the right politics because you care and, and have the talent in, in creative work, that's a mistake because they actually pull in other directions, in opposite directions in some ways. Art requires you to be relentlessly honest about yourself, to see everything about yourself and others that is important and needs representation. And that might take you far away from the political values that you hold dear, because the world is messy, complicated, in some ways perverse and tragic. And at the same time, politics requires you to join with others who may be pulling you in directions you don't completely agree with. It requires you to make compromises. It requires you in some ways to be dishonest, because if you tell the truth entirely about everything, you are going to alienate people and sabotage your own cause. Politics is a, basically, it's a dirty business. I mean, look at the way in which Israel and Hamas are being defended on both sides of that war. It's almost impossible, it seems, for their defenders to tell the truth, the whole truth about that war, because to do so is to subvert your own cause. And that is fatal for an artist, because once an artist starts to lie to him or herself, as well as to others, the art itself becomes corrupted. And eventually, I think even the, the creative impulse dies. So they're not they're not the same that is not to say that politics has no place in art because art is about human life and politics is a huge part of human life and some of the great works of art are political but they are not a party line they are not a defense simple and pure of a cause because once political ideas enter the lives of your characters as a creative writer they take on a life of their own. They are transformed by that contact with life into something that is higher and deeper than sheer politics. And that might even be, in the end, opposed to the line that you wanted to put forward, if you're being honest. It might take you in a direction that goes against your own political values. It sounds perverse, but I think a real artist knows that that kind of commitment to truth is not necessarily going to be compatible with a commitment to political righteousness. It's interesting looking at the pushback to the piece online. It, it struck me that there was somewhat of a generational divide there. That the next generation, you know, younger than than us, feels more invested in this idea of art and art's purpose being to bring about greater good and. I wonder if you, do you think that characterization is fair? Or do you think this is partly generational? It is. I mean, what I described about the Harper's letter was also generational. It was not hard for us to get every kind of thinker and writer to sign that letter. Left, right, black, white, Latino, gay, straight, trans, cis, except young people. That was the one group that we had a hard time with. And I think this is a generational divide, which is deep and complicated and sort of obsesses me because I don't want to be part of 
a kind of irrelevant, fading older generation that keeps hectoring and nagging young people who have all the vitality and the future on their side. I want to try to understand them. I want to talk to them and listen to them. But I do think that the idea that the role of politics in art is simply to state a political line and to to defend it is a formula for bad art. There's so much bad art being written and produced these days that is bad because it's good, putting that in quotes, politics, without the transformative process that art requires, which turns it into something else, something more universal and something more humanly complicated, because we're just not our own categorization. We're, we don't live in those boxes. We, we break out of them all the time. And the impulse to keep the art within a certain line is going to lead to self-censorship because the truth will push you in other directions if you are open to it. And if you don't want that in the art because it will weaken the the protests, it will weaken the cause, then you'll you'll start muting yourself and that's fatal for an artist. So I don't know how to say that without sounding generationally tone deaf, but I do see what I can't help saying is just a lot of bad writing. Something that the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie said a couple of years ago that she sees in her workshops and she sees from younger writers that this self-censorship and rigidity and desire to be orthodox is so much at odds with what good fiction, in the case of her work, requires that she's afraid, she said once, that there will be unreadable novels for the next couple of decades because the laboratory in which they're being produced is so uh, confined. I mean, I certainly notice I've been reviewing books for a really long time now. And in the last four or five years, the amount of books that get sent to me that are just very, very dull and, and sometimes unreadable has really increased a lot. And the mechanisms of how that happens and, and how that process kind of occurs, I think is is really interesting. And so I want to I want to read an extended quote here from from your piece. I want the audience to hear it for context. Uh, so just bear with me as I, as I read this extended quote. It seems natural for creative people to speak out at a time of crisis. We look to them for words and images that provide clarity and inspiration and consolation for truth. But in practice, this expectation turns out to be perverse. Instead of bringing their special talents, imagination, and ability to sustain competing thoughts and articulate them with nuance, a knowledge of complex history, a sense of tragedy and common humanity to a subject like Israel and Palestine, writers and artists are more likely to abandon their qualifications at the threshold of a political controversy. Upon entering, they begin speaking in a characteristic tone of outraged conscience. They indulge in rhetorical excesses and resort to euphemism and omissions that amount to outright lies. Um, and people can continue reading that passage because I just think it does such a good job of articulating what's happened. And you say in the piece that progressive orthodoxy has a strong grip on important institutions, that you can guess the outlines of a book review or prize competition if you know the politics of authors, critics, and judges. Talk to me a little bit about that dynamic. Yeah, this is something people don't like to talk about because they haven't given up hoping that they get those good reviews and those prizes. But 
it's pretty common knowledge that a certain kind of progressivism is almost required for leading literary prizes and fellowships to be given. Um, you just are not going to see them given to work that is either hostile to that orthodoxy or is simply indifferent to it. It is not about it. It's about something else. It's become so pervasive that you almost don't notice it anymore um, because it's it's a given that the judges, the reviewers, and the the institutions are on that side. And it's essentially the side of what I would call identity politics, the politics of a kind of progressivism that says you're uh, who you are, the immutable traits with which you were born determine your place in the hierarchy of, um, of justice and oppression. And even though not all, not everything is about that specifically, that's the context. It's as if without that ideological framework, nothing makes sense, nothing fits. So you don't know what to do with it. And it, it's either irrelevant or it's hostile. And it's it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> there are far worse things going on on the planet, as as people will remind me all the time. And, and of course, that is true. But if you care about our culture and about the freedom and diversity that's necessary to have a vital culture, which is core to liberal democracy, then you have to see this trend as a thread. It's not the same thread as Trump or Trumpism, but it has something in common, a kind of illiberalism and intolerance of any dissent that we see on the right. It's the left's version of that. It's in culture rather than in uh, government at this point. It's not running for president, but it is controlling some pretty powerful institutions. And if you have a conversation with just about anyone, I'm not going to say anyone, but lots of people over the age of, say, 35, um, who work in the arts, in media, in philanthropy, in uh, nonprofits, they'll tell you that this is going on. And that in some cases, it's quite suffocating. And and yet, it it's hard to raise it. It's hard to surface it because it makes you enemies. And so there's a, a, a general gaslighting that goes on where its practitioners say, and perhaps they even mean, what are you talking about? It doesn't exist. Cancel culture didn't exist until pro-Palestinians began to be canceled. And then suddenly, oh, this is a thing, but it's only a thing for pro-Palestinians. Well, actually, it's been a thing for quite a while, and you were probably one of the ones doing it. So I'm not sure I can take too seriously your sudden concern about it. That's the kind of intellectual atmosphere in which creative people are living right now, and it's not conducive to good artistic work. I also want to spend a moment on journalism because everything we're talking about right now in the arts applies to journalism as well, a topic that we cover on this podcast a lot. You know, I would say journalism also requires the need to sit with complexity, with nuance, with unresolved contradictions, 
the need to be able to change our mind when the facts take us in a different direction, that all of this is a necessary precursor to journalism as well. But there is a big debate in journalism right now about, you know, moral clarity versus objectivity, about the role of the journalist in public. My view is you you can't have both public trust and an overt political agenda. How do you think through those debates? A few months ago, I was on a panel at the Columbia University Journalism School. And on the panel with me were the some of the leading deans of journalism schools. So they are the people who are training the next generation of journalists. And the moderator said, we have to talk about the O word. And at first I didn't know what he meant. He meant objectivity, but it had become the O word because it's the word that dare not speak its name. And I went first and I said, no one is objective. That's the whole point. It's an aspiration, but it's an aspiration we can't afford to get rid of for exactly the reasons that you said, Tara, because the public will lose faith in us and we will lose hold of what makes our work important. No one else would defend objectivity. And one well-known journalist said, whose objectivity? Meaning, there's really no such thing. It's only, it's a subjective quality, which means there is no objectivity if it's entirely subjective. It was depressing because that was kind of like right at the heart of where elite journalism is being discussed and trained. And apparently it was a, a word that you couldn't defend. Um, and moral clarity is a phrase that, you know, I don't want to reject it. There are some things that are morally clear to me. The war in Ukraine is morally clear. Slavery was morally clear. The Holocaust was morally clear. The question is, if you decide, I'm going to write as a partisan of a cause, there's a place for that. There's some great writing done as crusading and as partisanship, but it's different from a journalism that says, I'm going to give you the closest approximation to the facts that I can, regardless of whether they push your thoughts in one direction or another. And they'll probably push them in different directions because, and this is the crucial thing, most things are not that morally clear. Most things are too complicated for moral clarity. And moral clarity has a way of blinding us to the nuances and the, the details that make it harder to make up your mind. But that's what readers have to confront, that things are difficult, that most issues are hard to make up your mind about. And it worries me that the next generation of journalists are celebrating the freedom that comes with not having to be objective, which I think in the end means being able to free yourself from the, the tyranny of facts, the tyranny of reality out there, which requires a certain effort to describe and to encompass it. It's, it's easier not to have to do that. Objectivity is hard work. And in terms of the larger political climate that we're in right now, I've, I've heard you describe yourself as politically homeless. You do come from the left. You're a Democrat. You were originally a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. I was indeed. It was a different DSA, but I was 
a real member and did a lot of work for them and don't regret a bit of it. In terms of where the left is at now and our criticisms of it, uh, my own stem from growing up in the aftermath of the 60s. My parents lived on communes. I was conceived on a commune. And I think, you know, I was born in 75, but the the seeds of what we're seeing play out now to me, I can trace back to what I observed in my childhood. I, I'm so curious about your own perspective. You, your, your father was an academic during the 60s, during that really tumultuous period, which may or may not have contributed to his stroke and, and to his ultimate death. Can you reflect a little bit on what you saw as a child and, and how you tie that to our current moment? Yeah, I can. Uh, I wrote a whole book about this um, called Blood of the Liberals. Um, my father was a law professor who became an administrator at a crucial moment, 1966, when Stanford University, along with most other universities, was becoming a hotbed of student protest about the war. And he was, as he called himself, a a 19th century liberal. He believed in the values of freedom of speech, of reason, of due process. That was what he devoted his whole career to. And in fact, he had been attacked from the right when Stanford hired him in the 50s by McCarthyites who thought he was a communist, uh, which was about as far from the truth as the fascist that the students later called him. So he got it from both sides. And yeah, he had a stroke in 69 and ended up taking his own life in 1972. And the family story, which I always have tried to hold at some distance, is that the student revolutionaries killed him. That's um, that's too much. He was his own person and had his own struggles. I did grow up with a sense that to take over a student building and to shout down a speaker and to to call people by hideous names in order to make sure that no one would take them seriously, that all of that was somehow wrong. And as a kid, I couldn't have told you how it was wrong. I just felt it was wrong and was told it was wrong and believed it was wrong. And I still do. So regardless of the rights and wrongs of the student uh, movement in the in the late 60s. And I think on the issue of Vietnam, they were absolutely right. But where I inherited my father's philosophy, I couldn't and can't accept that coercion and uh, irrationality, unreason, have a place in a liberal society where you have to talk out your differences and where there will always be those differences. And that's a pretty deep feeling. And I think when American politics and culture took this turn toward a, a fairly coercive and orthodox progressivism, I, I date it to around 2014, I something almost unconscious started to stir in me that reminded me of that period and made me feel as if, oh God, am I really going to be reliving my father's experience? Let's hope I don't relive all of it um, since I've spent most of my life <laughs> trying to avoid it. But it felt very familiar. And it, to some extent, it still does. It's 
it's different now. There's not nearly as much violence. The the divisions and the vituperation are online rather than in the streets for the most part, which makes them in some ways worse because people feel free to dehumanize online in a way that they might not if you were talking face to face. But it it does have that feeling of a mob that will not listen and that is determined to shut you down because of the supreme sense of righteousness. It's not because they are driven by hatred. They're driven by a sense of virtue, which can be at least as as powerful and dangerous. So yeah. Are we back in the 60s, Tara? Is that the way you're feeling? I do feel like that sometimes. I do. And I, you know, the the communes were not great places for children. They weren't great places for families. They often weren't good places for women. And I I see a sort of unraveling again in the current moment. And a and it scares me. You see, I'm sorry if I start asking you a few questions, but do you see the commune as a institution that has any similarity today? Or was that something particular to the hippie and, and 60s movement and something else is going on now where children and women are not threatened in the same way as they were where, I guess, freedom meant the freedom to do what you want and the mm. weak are going to be the ones who suffer in that case. Is that Do you see something happening today that's similar to that? I do. I think structurally it's very different, but the ethos feels very similar. The The idea of extreme individualism, of smashing societal norms, of a sort of ruthlessness in politics that lacks humanity in sort of a day-to-day caring way. I saw all of that as a youngster, and I see that same sort of ethos now. Mm. And you must just have like, as I do, a reaction in your central nervous system of no, this is bad. This will lead to worse things. Yes, I do have that reaction. I do. And I think, I think, I think it's a particular struggle for those of us on the left who believe still in sort of an old school leftism, who care very deeply about equality, who care about economic issues, a class who who care about those things very deeply, but find themselves now at odds with many of the proponents of those issues. It's interesting that class and the working class, which was the entire ethos of the left until maybe 1970, is no longer what animates it at all. I, w- I remember during the summer of 2020, when the protest movement broke out, thinking, why is nobody protesting the fact that in slaughterhouses in Iowa, immigrant workers are dying of COVID? I mean, that seemed like George Floyd was a case of mass inju- massive injustice, but that's also a case of massive injustice, but it doesn't seem to move people. And yet, it's not as though class politics and liberalism always go together. I mean, Class politics was the source of a lot of illiberalism in the 20th century. Now it feels as if identity politics is the engine of illiberalism. And Mm. people who want to talk about economic equality are liberals. It's a strange turnaround, but and I don't quite know how to explain it, but I don't know. What do you think of that? I don't know if you followed. There was a recent Monk debate on liberalism in Toronto. I didn't hear it. Yeah, it was a very, very interesting debate. And in the end, the 
the ones who were questioning liberalism won the debate. And I think part of why they were so successful is on the economic angle. And so I think that those of us who defend liberalism are in a bind right now in that in that the neoliberal economic structure is now crumbling and that, you know, particularly in Toronto, housing is a massive issue. And this is another generational divide. I'm I'm 48, my producer's 32. And our life prospects in terms of housing are vastly different. It just cannot be denied. And so I think the tension to be resolved there is how do we defend liberalism, defend freedom of speech, defend open inquiry, defend all of those things, but somehow resolve the tensions that come from the economic structure. How do you think through those tensions? You're absolutely right. And one way is to do what you just did, which is to make the imaginative leap into the experience of someone who's 15 years younger and to understand where the sources of their discontent are coming from. Um, because they're legitimate. They're absolutely legitimate. I mean, I often think, imagine having spent your childhood and young adulthood in the shadow of the Iraq war, the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and then the Trump presidency and the rise of right-wing populism all over the democratic world. It's a, uh, And climate change is this giant cloud over all of it. Yeah, it, it, it would make me think, why am I giving any credit to these people over 40 or 50 and to the institutions they run, which have led to this mess? But I guess economic issues feel to me as if they can be addressed without throwing out the philosophical foundation of liberalism, because they should be based on facts, on data, and on policy, and on majority rule and not on the metaphysics of identity, which we can't do anything about, but which in in the politics of identity determine everything about our position and about who our allies are and what we can say and what's right and wrong. It still seems like with economic inequality, which is something I've been paying attention to for a long time, it it doesn't bring out the sense of kill or be killed uh, in politics. The divisions over it do not turn people into mortal enemies that are a threat to my very existence and way of life. Whereas I do think cultural politics, identity politics has that effect. It It's me you're attacking. And so I'm going to defend myself by attacking you. And pretty soon we're we're in a cold civil war. What do you see as the path out of that heightened polarization and heightened tribalism? I don't see any easy path. It's going to be a long time coming uh, if we do get out of it. I thought and still have some hope that policies that reduce inequality and restore some power to the have-nots to people who work for an hourly wage, to people who have to work two or three jobs, uh, and to communities that have seen the the foundation of their life erode over the last few decades with globalization and trade and neoliberalism. Uh, Restoring power to them, economic power, political power, it's not not an automatic solution because they might use it to vote for Trump, but I still don't see any other way to lowering the temperature except to 
make it a little less likely that where you're born and to what family will determine everything about the rest of your life. If there's a genuine opportunity, genuine mobility as there used to be in country in Western democracies, then then I think there will be less going to the battlements, going to the immediate sense of kill or be killed that we're in now. But I may be wrong about that. Maybe there's some larger historical cause to all this that I'm not seeing and that's going to continue to play out for decades. I love that you just said that because I think one of the things that I miss so much about old school journalism is that constant question of, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> what if we're wrong? It's how can we important... not be wrong? <laughs> how, can, <laughs> how can anyone who's who paying attention not think I'm I'm wrong a lot of the time? Uh-huh. Uh, we because it's impossible just to know what's happening, and let alone what will happen and why it's happening. And yeah, I I'm allergic to the ideologues, and they're all around us. Mm. And just lastly, to circle back to where we started on on ideological capture in the arts, this is something I've been asking guests and, and wondering myself is um, this period of censoriousness and illiberalism and ideological capture. George, how do we know when it's over? By the way, Tara, it seems to be at least as bad in Canada as in the U.S. right now. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, I've just been following a few stories that make me think, wow, I'm not sure anyone would say that in this country. How do we know when it's over? It it probably never is over. But if you compare it to what for me is like an unfair but obvious comparison, which is the enchantment with the Communist Party that so many people on the left had in the 20th century, good people, people who wanted all the right things as um, the new progressives are on the side of the angels in their own view. I think we know its power is over when people speak up about it without being paralyzed by fear and without consequences that no one should have to uh, endure. And when the next generation, my children's generation, says, don't tell me what to say and think. I'll think for myself. And I see that happening a little bit. Uh, My kids are still school age, and they are a bit allergic to teachers imposing political dogma on them. They know it when it's happening. And they, like any young people, they're going to rebel against it. And I think maybe we'll be saved not by people between the ages of, say, 20 and 35, but by people between the ages of 5 and 20 who will grow up thinking, yeah, my parents were good people, but I I don't know why they had such rigid views of these things and why I couldn't say things that seemed reasonable but were being shut down. No one wants to be shut down, and young people especially don't like to be shut down. So that might be the the turning point when a new generation starts saying there are other problems in the world besides misgendering and besides someone speaking about an issue that I don't like at my campus. 
Well, that is a good place to leave it. George, I really appreciate this essay and uh, thank you for your writing and for your work defending free speech and for the conversation today. I appreciated it. Thanks a lot, Tara. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show at Apple Podcasts.